You're listening to Clinical Conversations from the NEJM Group. I'm Joe Elia. You're about to listen to the first of four interviews on race and clinical equity. I hope you will let us have your reactions. In this series of brief chats, we're talking about equity in clinical medicine, the lack of which is a situation that too many Americans face. With me is Dr. Kimberly Manning, a professor of medicine at Emory, where she serves as Associate Vice Chair of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, or DEI. And she tweets. Boy, does she tweet. <laughs> Welcome, Dr. Manning. Oh, thank you for having me. You know, we had a preliminary chat um, last week, and I asked you then to uh, tell a story that illustrates the problem of clinical equity, and you started talking about your father. Could you uh, tell that story again and what its lessons were? Yeah, um, well, I'll, I'll first say that um, my, my dad has, has been uh, very open about sharing this story, and so I share it with his permission. Um, and, you know, I, I think that when I think about the experience that my father had uh, when he had an acute MI or, or myocardial infarction, um, it really harkens on the power of bias, um, which is a big factor, I think, uh, in equity as well and how people are treated. And also underscores that bias is not something that is only um, in situations where there isn't race concordance. Um, we're all biased. <laughs> so my father uh, called me when I was a senior resident. I was in the CCU um, on my final rotation in the cardiac care unit. And we were chatting on the phone and dad told me uh, that he was having shoulder pain. Um, he's an avid golfer at that time and had you know, played a few holes of golf. And, um, but it was a very unusual way he was describing this shoulder pain on his left side. He saw his primary care doctor um, who you know, gave him some Motrin and he called back and expressed like, this is really not right. This is not normal, something's wrong. And um, you know, the doctor sort of kind of um, trivialized his feelings and said, you know, you played 36 holes of golf in a tournament. Like, of course your shoulder's gonna hurt. But my dad had you know, risk factors. Um, he had a family history of coronary disease. Um, he was hypertensive. He had hyperlipidemia. He was in care, but still he had risk factors. And um, you know, finally, you know, as we were chatting on the phone, he communicated to me that his pain felt like biting ice with his tooth. I was like, that sounds visceral, dad. That doesn't sound, I mean, not that my father really knows what I meant by visceral, but I knew it didn't sound like musculoskeletal pain from, you know, swinging a golf club. Yeah. And, um, you know, because I know how powerful bias is, I essentially told him to go to the hospital and I told him to lie. You know, I told him when he got there to say he had chest pain, that he was diaphoretic, that he had dyspnea on exertion, none of which he had. All he had was severe shoulder pain, but I thought that it sounded cardiac. Um, and that is what got him through triage. And, and the reason I say it's like an equity issue, right, is um, because what I know for sure is that if my dad had not, um, if he had come into the triage and just kind of said what he said, uh, we know that there's plenty of data that supports, you know, if, if you have four people, a black man, a black woman, a white man, a white woman, all with the exact same story, um, they they will they will often have different outcomes, and that's that's at the hands of either a, a black physician, a white physician, um, you know, any physician, uh, and that's because of the power of bias. 
my father would go on to get admitted to the hospital where he would have um, everything screaming acute myocardial infarction where a first year medical student could have picked it up. And after like 10 or 12 hours, he still had not received a cardiac catheterization. The urgency um, that the cardiologist on call should have felt, you know, wasn't, wasn't extended to my dad. And, um, you know, there's a piece of me that knows that, you know, I don't know, I, this is my belief. I, you know, I think if my dad had been a white woman, um, I, th I think I think he would have somebody would have gotten in the car and come to the hospital in the middle of the night to Kath and this troponin was 22. And if people listening to this are, you know, in the medical field, they know that that is very abnormal. That is not that's strikingly abnormal. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So it was rough, Joe. I mean, and my 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 um, my cardiology attending um, a wonderful advocate he looked at me and he said, you need to advocate for your father and you need to get him revascularized. And he coached me um, to call the hospital and basically speak, speak to the cardiothoracic surgeon um, and cardiologist, physician to physician. And, um, you know, I just keep imagining like, well, what if, <laughs> what, what if my dad didn't have a daughter who's a physician to, to tell him to do all these things? He probably would have he probably wouldn't be with us now because he would have been left with severe heart failure or he would have arrested that night. Yeah, and so most people don't have daughters like you. Um, yeah, and most daughters like me don't have a, a, a cardio <laughs> a intensive, <laughs> a, a cardiac interventionalist sitting next to them to tell them what to say, who's up on all the latest uh, literature, right? So, yeah. Um, you're in Atlanta and um, this week, there were uh, eight, eight people murdered. Yeah. And um, what are you hearing from the, your community there and your role as uh, as DEI? Have you have you had to exert any? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for bringing that up, Joe. I just think it's so important. You know, um, you know, we, we we are fortunate. Our culture at Emory is. Is a is a very tight knit culture, and um, you know, I would say, especially after the murder of Mr. George Floyd, um, the the outpouring of support then it it broke down a lot of you know walls for communication and for support, and so um, really the support for my colleagues and friends who are you know Asian American, Asian and Asian Pacific Islanders, um, it 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 just flowed freely. You know my. Um, two doors down from the office where I sit now, one of my colleagues who's Korean American, you know, I was, I just walked down there and we just, you know, had a heart to heart, just talked a lot about how he was feeling. Um, you know, there aren't any words, you know, to say, to really, you know, allay um, the, the fear that and all that's going on right now. But, you know, we, we're standing in solidarity in my leadership role, of course, um, we have a, a diversity, equity, and inclusion council in the Department of Medicine, and on that council, we um, we also have um, individuals from all different backgrounds. And with the help of our team, along with um, being advised by some of our colleagues who are Asian, um, you know, we, we we sent a message out to our department and opened up dialogue. We're having a sort of a a, a conference and town hall to sort of have more discussion about um, anti-Asian hate and, and what it feels like uh, for our colleagues. But I think most of all, 
we we are in this space where we are having the conversations. We 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 have we we say often around here that um, awkward is better than silence, and silence hurts really badly. And as a Black American, I I know for certain what that feels like. And so, I have had a lot of awkward conversations this week, standing in front of you know my Asian colleagues and um, you know interprofessional team members, and just kind of saying sorry and I hate this and I don't like you being scared and I'm just I see you but yes awkward is much better than silence it is one exercise I learned uh from you Dr. Manning is uh occurred during the the, the preliminary conversation we had last week and the, the exercise was the idea of checking your contacts uh, <laughs> as a life lens yeah. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, as much as we, we don't want to admit it, you know, we, we're, we're just a very segregated society. Um, you know, we, we play nice, but, uh, but then we leave work and we, we go into environments where everybody looks like us. And um, that, that does not help when it comes to us trying to move forward um, equity, right? Um, and so this exercise involves taking out your cell phone. Um, I tell people to actually start with your most frequently called contact list and look at that list first. Um, and then just start to go through your contacts and, and or, or who you've called recently or who's called you. And if you exclude people from work, try to figure out what percentage of the individuals um, don't share your race. For me, as a Black American, I went to a historically Black college for undergrad, Tuskegee, and then I went to Meharry. My closest friends are people from college and from medical school. Um, I'm involved in you know, community organizations that are sort of built on the back of the African-American community. And my contacts are very homogenous, quite frankly. If I remove all the people that are work contacts, it's almost all Black people. Um, and and, and so when I, when I started recognizing this, um, I, I really started um, to think more about intentionally developing relationships with people that I like and that I really enjoy um, who have different backgrounds than me. And that's what I call expanding your life lens because one of the biggest strategies to mitigate bias um, and to counter narratives is to step into lives that are not like yours. And, I, I don't really know what the life is like for some people. I can tell you exactly what it's like to be a black girl from Inglewood who double dutched on the corner and who went to HBCUs. I can tell you all about that. Um, but the way for me to be able to see people better is to broaden my life lens. Yeah. Uh, another powerful concept that came up during that, during that call was the idea that was the need for those in power to give up a chair the idea being that the, the change at the in individual level isn't enough. Uh, the structure needs changing. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I'm uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I, as I, I was going to say that uh, we had somebody on the call with us who, who decided who was affected by that and who said, I'm giving up my chair. Mm. Mm. Uh, and uh, at, at this table, which was very powerful. Yeah, uh, wasn't it? <laughs> it really was. And, and I, I talked with this person and it was it was a sincere aha moment. Mm, 
mm. you know, for him. And so at any rate. Yeah, uh, so that that was not lost on me um, at all. You know, and there, there's a space where you get so jaded, right? Where when someone does something, you the first thing you think is like, oh, is this performative? Which is a word I actually don't like. But um, but you think like, are they, are, do they mean this? But the truth is, this was this was really done in private. This was not a, a you know, there wasn't a lot of people who who would would get to see what this individual did. Um, and I think it was very sincere, and I was very moved um, by this act. And and just you know, for um, the people listening, just recognizing that as we were setting up who would be able to talk today, um, an individual from uh, you know a, a, a historically privileged group said, "Let me step aside." Um, to allow somebody else the opportunity to speak. And so the concept that I was talking about, um, you know, I think it really ties to Dr. Um, Kamara Jones, who is um, just an astounding, um, you know, she's a public health expert, a physician, and a person who just teaches a lot on anti-racism. And I have heard her talk a little bit about um, what needs to happen for us to kind of dismantle racism there's the structural piece that has to be dismantled. And then there's, of course, um, sort of intercepting or interrupting these negative values about people. But if we pick the place that's most urgent, it's the structure. So when I think about structural racism and what needs to happen, I, I find that there are a lot of attitudes that are changing because this underscores what she said, really. Attitudes are changing. So people are like, Black Lives Matter, you know, how are you doing? I see you um, and all these things that people are doing um, that, that mean a lot, but there's this place where for structure to change, it has to happen in leadership at a, at a leadership level. And, um, you know, the really meaningful way, I think, um, to, to, to dismantle or to start to at least tap, chip away at structural racism is to give people a seat at the table who were not historically there. Um, that means if there are musical chairs, kind of looking at it like musical chairs, right? And so I like to say that everybody is happy while the music is playing. So the black people, the white people, the women, the men, the cis, the het, the, the, the trans, everybody's holding hands and walking in circles. But when the music shuts off, historically, you know, um, white men get to sit down, right? And so the question is, if you're serious about this, when the music shuts off, step aside and let somebody else sit down. Let a black woman sit down. Let a, let a trans woman sit down. Um, you know, let somebody with a disability sit down. That, that to me is real. You know, when, you, when you're really serious about dismantling racism and, and, and achieving equity, um, that means at the highest levels, you have to be willing to step aside. For somebody to step in, someone must step out. Yeah. And I think that conversation has to happen more. Um, that's speaking at the structural level and now at the level of the individual. Mm -hmm. um, we'd, like to, we'd like to know for the listeners to this, what might a clinician be doing tomorrow to address this problem that uh, he or she wasn't doing today individually well one thing they can do is listen to conversations like this because um conversations like this they disrupt your thinking so anything that disrupts the way that you thought before right um is helpful but i think as an individual um 
you can just start to work at broadening your life lens. Um, and that, that, that is no matter who you are, um, because when we broaden our life lens to include more than just what's comfortable and what we know, um, that, that allows us, that directly translates to us taking better care of patients. So um, Joe, I'll tell you a quick story, if you don't mind. Love um, stories. <laughs> okay. So I, I, um, I, had a, I had a resident on my team um, a few years ago uh, who was from Mexico City. And um, this particular day, we happened to be rounding on my birthday. And he said to me, he said, oh, you know, we need to sing you Las Mañanitas. And I said, I don't know what that is. And he's like, you never heard that song. That's the song people sing you in the morning on your birthday in Mexico or in Latin America. Well, I'm, I'm not from Mexico or Latin America. I'd never heard that before. So he took out his phone, he played Las Mañanitas for me and we talked all about it. Of course, me being a nerd, I looked it all up and that was that. We finished the month, two or three years passed. I was on, this, on service caring for a patient um, who had advanced um, metastatic cancer. And um, she was a woman who was from Mexico and she was Spanish speaking only. And it just so happened that she was going to end up being in the hospital on her birthday. Um, she was really upset about it because it was a milestone stone birthday. And it just so happens it was two days before my birthday. So through the interpreter, I'm talking to her about her birthday coming up. She was very sad about it. Um, sad about her diagnosis. Um, and it was really nothing I could do at this point. We were going to get her to hospice. We had the palliative care team working with us. Um, you know, our wonderful interpreters at Grady have really taught me how to connect with our patients through interpreters. And as we keep talking, um, I, you know, I just feel so bad. There's nothing I can do. So on her birthday, I came, I went and bought a balloon from the gift shop and I came up um, with the balloon and with the interpreter gave it to her and then I said I have one more surprise for you and I took out my phone and I played Las Mañanitas <laughs> and the way that that woman cried I mean she cried her whole family cried they couldn't believe it like here comes this black woman in Atlanta Georgia playing Las Mañanitas and I would never have known what that was if it had not been you know for Alfonso my my intern those years before and that to me, underscores a case for diversity. That patient felt seen. She felt, you know, she felt valued. She felt comforted in that moment. Her whole family felt comforted. Um, and you know, it's even the most special part about it is two days later, I was um, coming into the hospital and I got paged to come to the floor uh, because the nurses needed me. And when I got up there, it was um, a, a card and two big balloons, a four and an eight from my 48th birthday from her. And in this perfect cursive that you can tell she had like written it out from Google Translate because it was kind of, the English was a little off. Um, <laughs> but she had written a message to me thanking me. Um, and I connected with this patient, you know, and I never, if I would not have had um, that, that Mexican student, I mean, re resident on my team who just told me this one thing and brought in my life lens in this fleeting moment, it then stayed in my heart, right? And it was something that I could come back and give to my patient and say, no, I know I'm talking to you through an interpreter. I do, I know that. I know that you have this bad diagnosis. And look, I, I, don't, I, I don't have the panacea for that, but I can see you, I can be with you. I can honor the fact that this is the day you were born and I can show your family that I'm culturally humble enough you know, to take what I learned from somebody else and bring it to you today and show you that.
it was just like, man, you know what? This is why you cannot have everybody on the team and in your hospital looking the same way. <laughs> I can't imagine a better way to end our chat, Dr. Manning. <laughs> And I want to thank you very much for, for your time and for your stories today. Thank you for listening. <laughs>